folks, um, as always, we have our our memory scripture for the folks. Um, as always, we have our our memory scripture for the day. And today it just happens to be Psalm 100, verse 4, which ironically says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Hallelujah. So uh, when we want to get close to God, it's a great idea to give him thanks and to praise his wonderful name. Many years ago, a friend of mine said to me, Praise your way to victory. So if there's any area in your life in which you are looking for victory today, then give him thanks and praise his wonderful, wonderful name. Now today we've, we've got uh, Michelle joining us. She's going to um, lead us in communion. And I'll just make sure she's here. No, she hasn't joined us yet by the look of it. Now that's okay, so I, I wouldn't be so so cruel to her as to make her do the communion straight away, but uh, Michelle is going to lead us in communion and praise the Lord she'll join us a little later on. And uh, so what we'll do is we'll actually get stuck into our discussion point for today. And um, I want to continue with our uh, discussions on, on the rapture. This is our actually our seventh uh, week of looking at the the rapture, and um, of course uh, we haven't done seven weeks one after the other. That would probably be a little bit too much for us all to to take in. So this is number seven, and um, in many ways we've been working up to this discussion point and the one that will follow. And I want to present to you this morning a number of biblical um, biblical texts that support the idea of pre-tribulation rapture. And I also want to talk a little bit about pre-tribulation rapture from a theological perspective. So we'll look at biblical text and we'll look at general theology and um, discuss how general theology points to a pre-tribulation rapture as well. And of course, what's prompted me to spend so much time on the book of Revelation on the tribulation and on rapture is the fact that the theological position or the doctrinal position that Australian Christian churches take is that Jesus will come to rule for a thousand years and uh, that's a pre-millennial position and they also take the position that the return of Jesus is imminent and I've mentioned a number of times that the doctrine of Eminence actually presumes or implies a pre-tribulation rapture. And that should become clearer as we work our way through our discussion point today. So you've seen this slide before where we just look at how, as the Bible unfolds, the rapture and the second coming fit together. So right now we're in that yellow portion of our diagram where we are in that period between the first coming of Jesus and the rapture. According to most uh, Pentecostals doctrine, the tribulation period is heralded when the 
church, those who are currently followers of Jesus Christ, are raptured out of earth into heaven. And uh, there's a second coming of Christ that happens at the end of a seven-year period of tribulation. And then there's the millennial or 1,000-year rule of Jesus Christ with the saints who were raptured beforehand. And after that 1,000-year period, there is the final judgment and then a different life for the whole of eternity. You've seen that before. Uh, Jeanette's got a note for me. I can't read it. Okay, yep. Um, there, lots of us seem to be having technical problems this morning. Who knows? It could be the cold which is upsetting <laughs> everything. Never mind. But um, just a reminder too, because it's a few weeks since we've been looking at this, that during the seven-year tribulation period, there are the seven seals that are opened, there are the seven trumpets and the seven bowl judgments. Uh, Norman Geisler, among other theologians, argue that these happen one after the other. They're not simultaneous. Some theologians say that the seals, the trumpets and the bowl judgments are simultaneous. Others, like Norman Geisler, and I tend to agree with him, would argue that these happen one after the other. In other words, they're all judgments that come upon those who are living on the earth at the time of the tribulation. And uh, the key scriptures in relation to the tribulation, I've listed up there 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 15 through, uh, through 18 and 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through to 53. I'm using the New Living Translation because I think it's one that's pretty easy to understand. Um, but I would suggest that if you're studying these scriptures, look not only at the New Living Translation, but also the New King James Translation of the Bible. So 1 Thessalonians 4:15 to 18 in the New Living Translation says this, We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, that is, they'll be resurrected. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And uh, the trumpet or trumpets feature in both of those passages. I've often wondered whether those trumpets are related to uh, the trumpets in the seven trumpet judgment during the tribulation period. In fact, there's no special reason why they should be because the trumpet throughout scripture refers to warning or a summoning of the people of God. And so in the instances in these two passages where the trumpets are referred to, 
it's just as likely that they refer to simply a calling together of the saints of the faithful or a readying of them for what is to come next. So those trumpets are not necessarily related to uh, the seven trumpet judgments during the tribulation period. Now the next three slides we've been through already a few weeks ago, but I've just got them here so that we can refresh our memories about the nature of the tribulation. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. It's going to be a time when God uses both natural and moral evil to punish or to judge the people who are living on earth. So here we have on this, this table the, the seven seals, those seals that are associated with the horses, the white, red, black, and pale horses. They are what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the beginning of sorrows. And you can see that there's not only moral evil, that is evil which is caused by men, so, for example, look at the fifth seal associated with the cry of the martyrs. There's tribulation there for those who have come to the Lord during the tribulation period. They will be hated by all nations. Then we'll see there's also natural evil. For example, under the sixth seal, there are cosmic disturbances which manifest in earthquakes occurring on the earth. So I'm not going to spend too much time going through that because we've done it already a couple of weeks ago, but it's there to refresh your memory. Then we look at the seven trumpets, and again, they're associated with both uh, moral and natural evil that God is using for his specific purposes. And you can see there that a lot of human life is extinguished during that period of time. And you can see there, look, the first trumpet is associated with green grass and a third of the trees being burned up. The second trumpet, a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of ships and sea life are destroyed. Third trumpet, a third of the waters turn bitter. Fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, moon and stars do not shine. Fifth trumpet, locusts wield the beast's military power. Sixth trumpet, 200 million strong army, one third of all humanity on earth at the time is killed. And then the glorious kingdom of God is declared under the seventh trumpet. Then we move on to the seven bowls, the seven bowls of judgment during the tribulation. And you can see that with the first, the first bowl, sores afflict those who have the mark of the beast and worship his image. And I did mention back then that sometime in the future I will talk in detail about the mark of the beast. The second trumpet, seas turn to blood, all sea creatures die. Third trumpet, rivers turn to blood, which is punishment on behalf of the martyrs. The fourth bowl, humanity is scorched by great heat from the sun, but yet people continue to blaspheme God. The fifth trumpet, the beast's kingdom is afflicted with darkness and pain. The sixth of the seven bowls of judgment. The Euphrates dries up, making it possible for armies to gather at Armageddon. And this, remember, will be the last great battle over Israel. The seventh bowl, the greatest earthquake in human history. Hailstones, literally stones from heaven, 
as large as 40 kilograms will rain down on people. There will be no shelter, but still people will reject and blaspheme God. During the whole of this period of seven years, people will nevertheless be saved. There will be people who respond to God, who choose to become followers of Jesus Christ. Many of them will be martyred. They will be living indeed in very, very dangerous times. At the end of the session when I talked about the tribulation, I made this point. We won't suffer God's wrath. So during all of those judgments, during that whole period of tribulation, God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. But we, we who are saved, we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we who are the saints, we who are Christians today, we will not suffer God's wrath. Why? Not because of anything that we have done, but because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, because of uh, what, what Jesus did for us on the cross, we will not suffer God's wrath. God's wrath is reserved for those who are known as the wicked during that time of tribulation. Now, I'm just going to see, I just, um, I just saw Michelle. There she is. Michelle, are you, are you ready to lead us in communion at this point? I am. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Um, let me right. just... Yep. Now, if you want, you can put your, um, your uh, camera on, but that's entirely up to you because it's the words that we really want to hear. Okay, well, I'd love to do that, except I've had to do one of those... On your phone, yeah, that's fine, that's fine, Michelle, that's fine. Yeah, look, we've, we've had um, some technical difficulties here this morning that have really tried us, but praise the Lord, oh, we're still here. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your patience. Sorry about the delay. So, communion message. Well, in preparation for this morning's communion message, I have been faithfully waiting for God to give me a word rather than pick a topic of my own choosing. And I was discussing this with Jeanette, and we thought this is the way. Keep praying, pushing into God. Let him tell me what he'd like to speak about. So I had yesterday a complete faith that I would be um, given that word and nothing came through. I prayed for revelations and tongues before I went to bed that night, nothing. I woke up this morning at 6.30 to receive that elusive word from God and nothing. Then at 7.15, as clear as day, it came to me. What I need to speak to us all about is faith. It arrived, and obviously it had been arriving in God's timing and not mine. So how often does that happen? Okay, so... Looks as if we've lost you altogether now, Michelle. 
Is that better? Yeah, somehow or other you were muted. But it's all good now. Yeah. Okay, where did I lose you? <laughs> um, maybe, yeah, you got to the point that you were going to focus on faith just after you got this revelation at a quarter past seven this morning. Then it automatically right. According to the dictionary, faith is complete trust and confidence. Um, okay, it's complete trust and confidence in someone or something. It is a noun, it's a word used to describe a place or a person or a thing. However, the faith I've been hearing this morning is something to do with action. It's a verb. So this is where I've been following. So I started thinking about, okay, what does faith look like as an action? As the disciples gathered with Jesus on that last supper together to break bread and listen to his teachings, he knew he had only a short time to live on earth. He knew their faith would be vulnerable to attack tested by worldly circumstances. These same challenges are faced by us today. As we take the bread and the juice, let us put our faith in action by blocking out the distractions of the world and instead of focusing on living in God's light and sharing that light with the world. So what I found um, a passage in Hebrews which really reminded me of, of what God is and it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever it's come out of Hebrews 13 8 and it occurred to me our circumstances may have changed we're now entering a new season but our God has not and that is the great news that we all need to cling to um, I've also been doing a bit of reading on James lately, and he has quite a lot to say about uh, faith, not just a state of being, but also as an action. So in James 2.17, he says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough, unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Faith and action work together. Actions makes faith complete. So as we take our bread and our juice, may I suggest that we say this prayer. Dear Lord, please help us keep our focus on you alone so we can act as your candles in the dark. Help us to show mercy towards those whose faith is challenged by circumstances, both physical and spiritual, and remain humbled by your undeserved grace towards us. So if we take the drink and the bread, can you hear me? Yes, it's, it's loud and clear. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Okay. Um, so if we take our drink and bread and just think of, uh, focus on God and the light that he could shine through us. We must not let the season distract us from that single focus and we must show that light to others and give those directions for we are of the kind that 
is lacking direction. People are seeking things. So we thank you, God, for that faith that we implanted. We take this bread and this wine because we know that this is a symbol of your uh, grace towards us. And as a reminder, because we all need reminding that uh, you must always be our focus. And that we know that those disciples, though at the time of the Last Supper, they all felt that they had faith. Uh, even Judas had a faith, uh, but it was a misguided faith that what he was doing was correct. But we need to keep focus. And this bread and this wine is his way of reminding us to keep that, keep that promise to him. So if we take that now, thank you. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for that, Michelle. And uh, again, I do apologise for our technical difficulties. So praise God. I did get a message from someone a little earlier to say that they were stuck on slide one and the slides weren't advancing. I'm actually just up to slide number nine at the moment. So um, if, if that's an issue, just let us know. I'm not sure that I can fix it in a hurry. Um, the way to do it on, is, is to um, stop sharing and start again. And I'm trying to run it all off my computer at the moment, um, which could slow things down quite a bit. So I will make the whole PowerPoint presentation available for you through Dropbox. And I'll, I'll send you a link to that um, later today, or if not today, then we'll do it tomorrow. But um, one of the reasons why we do communion regularly, most weeks in fact, is that it really is central to our understanding of what Christianity is all about. I've got another message through. We'll just see how we're going. Okay, it's on the right slide now. We'll just see how we go when we advance slides. Thanks for that message, Neil. I really do appreciate that, um, that feedback. So the, the community is really central to the whole of our Christian faith. And Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me. And it was all about remembering not, not him necessarily as a person, but what he achieved for us on the cross. And, and, and you will see a little later on when we get to the theological support for the notion of a pre-tribulation uh, rapture, how important our understanding of what Jesus did becomes. So let me move on now to the main points involved in our discussion point this morning. And I want to suggest that I'm presenting today 12 arguments from the biblical text and four arguments from theology that support the idea that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. In fact, there are 12 arguments. Well, it really depends on who you read. Some uh, talk about fewer, some talk about more. But I've chosen to go with 12 arguments from biblical text that support the idea of pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, 12, this is really not, not relevant, but I'm just putting it up for fun, really. 12, of course, is the number of perfection, also represents God's power and authority, which, of course, is represented 
in the biblical text that I will refer to this morning. The theological arguments, there are four of those that I'm presenting today, and if we don't have time to do it today, we'll do it next week. Four is the number of creation. And you can go all the way back to the creation record in the book of Genesis, and you will see there God's power and authority displayed. And in fact, it starts at that point of creation. The very first words in the Bible say, God created. God created the heavens and the earth. So let us move on. Um, as I said, there are 12 arguments, and um, there's actually a lot of reading behind this. And, uh, you know, it would just take us weeks and weeks and weeks to go into it in really significant detail. However, here we go. And these, these arguments are not necessarily in any order of importance. They're all important. None is necessarily more important than the other. So here's one point. The church, the church that is, it's made up of all of those who are Christians today, all of those on earth who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have committed their lives to Christ. This church is not mentioned as being on earth during the tribulation period. So in the whole of Revelation chapter 6 through to 18, where the tribulation is described, there's no mention of the church at all. So there's indirect evidence that the church is not on earth at that time. The church as the bride of Christ is mentioned as being in heaven during the tribulation. So during that tribulation period, there's no mention of the church being on earth, but there is mention of the church as the bride of Christ being in heaven during the tribulation period. Revelation 3 verse 12, again reading from the New Living Translation, says this, All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So here we are, some evidence that the church is actually in heaven during the tribulation period. The reason? The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, and that happens towards the end of the book of Revelation. There's also a reference in Revelation, and I, I stuck a double N there on in. I shouldn't have done that. That's uh, a bit of a bad on my part. Reference in Revelation to those who dwell in heaven. In Revelation 13, 6, for example, it says this, And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So all of those who are in heaven during the tribulation period are actually blasphemed against. So that's indirect evidence that the church is in heaven during the uh, period of tribulation. Saints, apostles and prophets are in heaven during the tribulation period. Now, 
there's reference here to Revelation 18, 20 and 19, 14. You really need to read the whole of Revelation chapter 18 and chapter 19 to get the full sense of this passage of scripture. So I'd strongly urge you to read through the whole of both of those chapters. In Revelation 18, 20, it says this, Rejoice over her, that is Babylon's fate. O heaven and people of God, and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sakes. So we won't be on earth at that time. We will be in heaven where the people of God, where apostles and prophets, at last God has judged Babylon for our sakes. Revelation 19.14, the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And this is a description of Jesus coming to reign at the beginning of the millennium. So he's coming with a whole army dressed in the finest of pure white linen and riding on white horses. The 24 elders of Revelation 4.4, which we spoke about at length quite a while ago now, they must be the raptured saints. And the reason is they sit on thrones, they have white robes, and they are given crowns, which are all promises for believers in the church age. So the church age, as I mentioned earlier, is that period between the first coming of Jesus and the period of the, the rapture and tribulation. So we are promised that we will sit on thrones, we will have white robes, and we will be given crowns. And that's the status of the 24 elders in Revelation 4, point, uh, 4 verse 4. And as I recall, we talked about the 24 elders representing the church when we were dealing with Revelation chapter 4. I note there that there are also believers during the tribulation period, and I did mention a little earlier this morning, of course, that during the period of tribulation, there will be people who become followers of Jesus Christ. There will be people who become Christians and they are going to have a pretty terrible time. Uh, that Many of them will be martyred. They will definitely be persecuted. But there will be some who turn to Jesus during that period. Moving on. The church is delivered from rather than through the hour or the time of trial. And we read in Revelation 3.10, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. So there we have God's promise to protect us from rather than through that great time of testing or the hour of trial. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger upon us. More evidence that God will take us away from that period of tribulation rather than simply be with us through it. Next point. 
Imminence, and remember that that's one of the doctrinal bases of the Australian Christian churches, and I've said this many times already, imminence implies a pre-tribulation rapture. The ACC doctrinal statement doesn't actually specifically say that the church as a whole believes in pre-tribulation rapture. But you see, if you hold to the doctrine of imminence, which is all about Jesus coming absolutely without warning. That is, it will be signless and swift, right? The Bible tells us that. Yet, if the rapture were to happen during or at the end of the period of tribulation, there are lots and lots of signs. So it's very hard for somebody to hold to the doctrine of imminence without also holding to the doctrine of pre-tribulation rapture. So the whole idea behind imminence is a number of passages that state that Jesus will return for the saints without warning. In other words, there won't be signs that it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 52 says this, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. So it will happen without warning. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, And that, that trumpet is a trumpet for those of us who are being gathered up to be with Jesus. Another point is that the church is not destined for the time of Jacob's or Israel's trouble. And we have spoken about this as well a few weeks ago. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says this, In all history there has never been such a time of terror. It will be a time of trouble for my people Israel, yet in the end they will be saved. And that's the Bible promises that there will certainly be some of Israel who turn to Jesus during the period of tribulation. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 to 27, it should say verses 24 to 27 on the screen there. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. And we actually mentioned that the exact number of days can be counted in terms of that prophecy. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defences despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. And this is referred to as the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks. 
But after half of this time, that is half of the time through the tribulation, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So the idea behind this is that God is never going to abandon Israel. The prophecy in the Old Testament in particular about Israel has not been fully fulfilled at this time, but it will be. There will be a time of Jacob's trouble. But the church... The Christian church, the church, if you like, of the Gentiles, the New Testament church, because we're not Israel, we will not be caught up in that time of Jacob's or Israel's trouble. The idea of blessed hope, which we read in Titus 2, verses 12 to 13, also implies a pre-tribulation rapture. The verses read like this. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward with hope, this is the blessed hope, to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ will be revealed. You see, there is a problem with the idea of Christians living through the period of tribulation and at the same time having a blessed hope. Our blessed hope, in fact, is that we will be raptured out of, saved from the great tribulation. Yeah, I'm just, I've just got so many pieces of paper here. Um, I'm getting a little bit mixed up. Anyway, we've, we've got to continue. We have more yet to come. So that concludes the 12, if you like, supports from Scripture, from biblical evidence, in favour of a pre-tribulation rapture. I want now to turn to something that you very, very rarely see in writing about the rapture and about the tribulation. Oh, hang on, I haven't quite finished. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've got this page to go. Do forgive me. Continuing with biblical support for pre-tribulation rapture, Christ comes for the saints before he comes with them. He comes for the saints before he comes with them. Now, just, I just need to find my scriptures for this. Yes, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 17, and John 14, verse 3. From Thess 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves, then together with them we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. The idea that we're going to be caught up in the air with Jesus Christ, he's coming for us. From John 14, when everything is ready, I will come and get you 
so that you will always be with me where I am. And just preceding that statement by Jesus, of course, he's talking about the idea that in his father's house, there are many mansions. When everything is ready for you, I will come and get you. He comes for us. Compare that with Jude verses 14 to 15 and Matthew 24 verses 29 to 31. Jude says this, Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see, the, the key here is the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. They must already be in heaven with him if he is to come with them. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Yep. Oh, hang on a minute. I've lost I've lost some of my some of my scriptures by the look of it. Here we go. Verse twenty nine. Immediately after the anguish of those days, and Christ Jesus is talking to his disciples here about the end times. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. So there must be saints in heaven for him, to gather them together when he returns again to rule throughout that millennium period. And now we turn to the theological support for pre-tribulation rapture. And as I, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, I, I've rarely seen in any discussions about the tribulation or about the rapture a discussion about the theological support. So most, most people argue from the perspective of individual scriptures or portions of scriptures. But I, I think that there are some quite strong theological arguments that support the idea of pre-tribulation rapture. And the most important one by far, and in many ways, I think this is the only argument you, uh, you, you need. I think we've got the wrong page there as well. Oh, man, not having a good, a good morning this morning, am I? Here we go. Okay, first, there is a real distinction between Israel and the church. So the church will not participate in Israel's 70th week. Now, we've really touched on that already. But you see, theologically speaking, Israel and the church are different. Now, there are people who believe, for example, that the Christian church, the New Testament church, replaces Israel. 
And uh, often people who believe that also believe that the tribulation is something that happened around AD 70 when the Romans um, sacked uh, Jerusalem. But for many of us, we, we can't agree with that position and we do believe that the prophetic words spoken about Israel in the Old Testament are not yet fully fulfilled and they will be fulfilled during that tribulation period when God not only deals with the wicked of the world, but he also deals with Israel. The church is not part of God's dealing with Israel at that time. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that the Christian church today should ignore Israel. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to bring uh, people who are Jewish into the kingdom of God as part of the New Testament church. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means, though, that throughout the Bible, there is a clear and a real distinction between Israel and the church. And what that means is the church won't participate in Israel's 70th week, which is mentioned in Daniel 9, verse 27. A second point, and I think this is really important as well, is that there is a divine pattern on the part of God of not judging the righteous with the wicked. Now, I should say, of course, that believers may suffer because of sin. For example, abuse that happens during wars or Christians who might be affected, even killed, in natural disasters. Now, we spoke about that at the beginning of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic when I asked the question, is this something that God has done? The answer was no. Um, in fact, I think the specific question I asked was, "What you know, is God up to something? And I said, no, but certainly nothing bad. And we talked about moral evil, we talked about natural evil, both kinds of evil were unleashed on the earth because of original sin. The whole of creation was affected by original sin. And as a result, we suffer from both moral and natural evil, whether or not we are Christians. Sometimes bad stuff happens to Christian people. But I want to read to you from a Genesis 18. In fact, I want to read from 20, verse 22 to verse 33. And this records the discussion that Abraham had with God in relation to Sodom. And this is not the only example. Remember, God saved Noah and his family from the flood. They were the only righteous people on the earth. God saved them when he punished the rest of the people who were wicked. And we see other examples of this throughout the Bible. So here we are from Genesis 18, verses 22 to 33. The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? You would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the city.
In fact, he says, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. Please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find it 30. Then Abraham said, Since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only ten are found there. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. So there we have the first uh, mention, if you like, of God not punishing the righteous for the sins of the wicked. Again, evidence that we who are the New Testament church will not be caught up in the tribulation. Two more points to make. And this one I, I think is critically important. Jesus covered our sin. God's wrath for our sin fell upon him. And there are a number of scriptures there I won't read through them because we're running short on time. But remember Jesus said this from the cross, it is finished. We celebrate communion on a weekly basis at Ignite Life Church and we remind ourselves continually that God dealt with our sin on the cross. His wrath, which ought to have fallen upon us, actually fell upon Jesus. When he went to the cross, he took our sin and he suffered God's wrath on our behalf. Now, personally, I don't see how you can believe that and simultaneously believe that God's wrath is going to be poured out on us as well as the wicked during the period of tribulation. We've either been saved from it or we haven't. And there's no, if you like, boundaries on our salvation. We're saved from absolutely everything. Through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we've entered into a new covenant that Paul describes as a better covenant, a covenant of grace. By the grace of God, his wrath has been poured out on Jesus, not on us. And that's something we remind ourselves of every time we take communion. And finally, belief in pre-tribulation rapture motivates us towards holiness or sanctification daily, lest we miss out on rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we all must stand before Christ to be judged. We will all receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames. And what that points to, of course, is that we don't lose our salvation in this judgment. That's already been dealt with. That was dealt with at the cross. But we may, or we will, lose rewards if we haven't lived out our lives fully uh, according to the precepts of Jesus. Revelation 22.12 says, Look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. So there is uh, this element of judgment for Christians as well, except the judgment is not about whether we go to heaven or to hell. The judgment actually is about the rewards we get as Christians. Now, in a sense, God was kind of good to set up this kind of carrot and stick type um, system, if you like, because it motivates us to live holy lives. Because if we don't, then we will lose rewards when we come before him for judgment as, as Christians. So, you know, all people actually face judgment. The wicked they will face the final judgment which comes at the end of that millennium rule of Jesus Christ. We will face a different kind of judgment at the time of our rapture. So this is a weaker argument. If that was the only theological argument in favour of pre-tribulation rapture, then the idea of pre-tribulation rapture wouldn't have strong foundations. But if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then you will be motivated towards holiness because you don't want to lose the rewards that are set out for us in the word of God. So, so there you have it. Um, Twelve, if you like, biblical or scriptural reasons for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture and four theological reasons for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. For me personally, the idea that... Whoops, sorry, wrong slide. For me personally, the idea that Jesus covered our sin and that God's wrath was fully poured out on him, that really is the clincher. God will not pour out his wrath upon us who are Christians because it's already happened. It happened at the cross of Calvary. Now, next week, I actually want to, want to share with you something a little bit different in terms of understanding of, of the rapture. I want to refer to another theologian who has put together a case that Christians will be protected from, uh, sorry, will be protected through the rapture rather than taken, uh, sorry, let me start that again. The idea that Christians will be protected uh, through the period of tribulation, much like Israel was protected through the 
plagues uh, that affected Egypt rather than being taken out before the tribulation. I want 